Shit Platypus Says, episode 26. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my. This has been a thing in the US and the UK about this targeting of these historical figures which are being toppled and thrown in the river mm-hmm. and destro- or graffitied or burnt and destroyed. Burnt? Yeah, burning. So the statue becomes charcoal and then, I don't know, it's mm-hmm. obviously hard, it's hard to, to burn a statue. Yeah, the toppling has been quite popular in the United States. But it, it's gotten to the point where some of these statues... I mean, I I heard, for example, that General and President Grant Mm -hmm. uh, got toppled. Mm -hmm. Grant -hmm. Grant was a general in the Union. He fought against the Confederacy. He was the one that helped defeat the Mm -hmm. slaveholders. Mm -hmm. So things are getting very confused. Well, there's, there, there's that um, that Grant documentary that came out just recently as well, and they kind of paint him as leading the civil war against the co- Confederacy and being like a key player in the, if yeah. not like the single key player in, yeah. in, the, in the defeat of the Confederacy that the um, absolutely that the Patriots needed. Mm-hmm. And you know the statue of Abraham Lincoln. Apparently, they're they're pushing to take it down. They I think they wrote racists or or whitey or something on it. And Thomas Jefferson, uh, who was the author of the law that served as the basis for the first anti-slavery legislation in America. Yeah, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, he always gets targeted, of course. And Thomas Jefferson ought to be defended. President Grant ought to be defended. But the idea that you're going to take down Abraham Lincoln in the name of anti-racism or something is just so utterly confused to the point of, I, I mean, to the point of just being stupid. I I don't know if these people know the history that they're targeting. It seems like an attempt to, to forget all of the history, that by toppling the statues, you don't have to deal with the history and what and what that history or that complicated history might mean for the present. Mm-hmm. Um, a way of forgetting to get rid of them or trying to. Right. Trying to forget. I mean, I don't know to what extent people know who these people are. I don't know. I, I think that there is this kind of impulse to destroy the past without understanding it. It seems to be an erasure of history mm-hmm, in a mass mm-hmm. scale. And specifically because the the statues being targeted are connected to the, you know, kind of revolutionary history of the United mm-hmm. States, like mm-hmm. Jefferson and Lincoln and Grant. It's it's a kind of avoidance of the task of revolution in the United mm. States under the guise of revolutionary activity. Yes, when there's there's no when there's no left around to uphold that revolutionary history, it gets upheld by the right. And so you mm-hmm. have uh, one of Trump's latest speeches, I think, to the like, young conservatives of America. I think he was addressing. He says, Our heroes are not a source of shame. They are an example and something that you can all look up to, a true example of greatness, a point of pride. And we will honor them and cherish them forever. We will cherish them. And we have to cherish our past. We have to cherish good or bad. We have to understand our past. We have to understand our history. Because if we don't know our history, it could all happen again. Yeah, I guess these people that are toppling these statues, the assumption is we already know this history. And what this history added up to was white male domination. Mm, mm-hmm. That's what this history is. And so we mm-hmm. need to get rid of it. It's an avoidance of history, though. It is. People say, well, you know, a lot of them are these Confederate statues, and so, you know, fuck these Confederate statues anyway. And it's like, sure. Like, I don't, you know, I don't care about these sites of, like, commemoration of the Confederate soldiers. But what I think is a travesty is that the memory of the Civil War would be erased from the public Mm. squares of the United States, because that's what's happening when you're toppling down these Confederate soldiers and Ulysses S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, there's a reason why they remain in these public squares. So there's a reason why they were erected mm-hmm. in these public squares. It erases the history of freedom that, that men had to fight for. Yeah, but all people, I mean, mm-hmm. right? Like in a collective struggle of freedom had to fight for including mm-hmm. white males 
women, fugitive slaves. And for what, though? That's, you know, I guess that's the question. Like, what, what is this adding up to? Like, what, what for? If for some unfortunate reason you are near a statue that's going to be toppled, don't stand underneath it. There's an important piece of advice. <laughs> Get out of the way. Ship Platypus says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. My name is Sophia Freeman, and we have two segments for you today. In the first, I am joined by Platypus members James Vaughan, Spencer Leonard, and my co-host Pamela Nagales to discuss the legacy of the American Revolution and the repercussions of the 1619 Project. In the second segment, I catch up with Rory Hannigan and Clint Montgomery in light of our summer reading group on Kautsky's Marxism. We reflect on Karl Kautsky as a leading figure in Second International Marxism and why it might be important to consider his historical legacy today. Legacy of the American Revolution. Uh, there are seven lectures in total, and the series will finish with a panel discussion entitled The Fate of the American Revolution. The lectures are being held via Zoom on Fridays. We'll include a link to the event in the description by which you can access the Zoom link and the lecture series times, etc. We'll include all, include all of this information. And you can also catch any lectures you may have missed via YouTube. We'll include a link to that too. So I'm joined now by three of the contributors. We have James Vaughan, Spencer Leonard, and my co-host Pamela Nagales. And we thought we'd catch up in light of the current events um, in the US and across the world. So I have a question for you guys. How did the idea for the lecture series come about and why now? I think that the original idea was to have a panel series, which we started on the American Revolution. Platypus has been around for 14 years now and several of the first generation members got an education on the French Revolution uh, that included Richard Rubin as well as James Vaughan. And it was a really critical moment in our education and on the problem of freedom. There were several of us that wanted to revisit this education and we thought that doing a lecture series would help impart that first decade of education in platypus my sense of their importance and their totality from beginning to end is um, really two things coming together. One, what Pam's already said, but I think specifically why we're focusing on the American Revolution and its legacy, which is a term which we're giving to the history of the United States as a whole, is I think it's undeniable that presently any concern publicly with the American Revolution is in the shadow of the 1619 Project. We may not like that, but I think it's unavoidable. It's the horizon of our moment and it can't be escaped. And as such, I think that that's why we're not revisiting the general history of the bourgeois revolutions, enlightenment, bourgeois radicalism, the left, but specifically the history of the United States, which is the history of the American Revolution and the polity it constituted. And so I do think that this is an attempt to, uh, it's a recognition of the fact that it's necessary to as much as possible at an educational level, a, a level of self-education, self-clarification, to revisit this specific history in light of the fact that the 1619 Project and its efforts to erase 1776 have now become a core concern of, of the left. And I mean that broadly from your everyday liberal, low-information voter to all the way through to, uh, you know, the organized self-conscious left. Yeah, we're making the case for 1776. Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's a, a concern of Platypus from its founding that the state of the American Revolution, you know, where do we stand in since in the unfolding of the American Revolution, 
uh, is a question that rarely gets asked on the left. Instead, the United States is viewed typically as the great obstacle to mm -hmm. the organizing of leftist politics. Mm -hmm. And really that masks, you know, that, that's dependent on a rotten leftist narrative. The United States was not the chief organizer of, of counter-revolution in the age of European revolution, in the age of the Russian revolution. It, it was in some ways an outlier. To what degree was Marxism constituted in the United States is a question that was, was always raised, but the necessity of Marxism in the United States after the collapse of, of socialism in Europe in the wake of 1917 has been a question that has haunted the left for a century. And it raises the deep history of the left, which was always connected to the American Revolution. The American Revolution, in some sense, inaugurated the modern age of revolution. It was the last republic standing uh, in a fundamental way after the collapse of of the French Revolution and the, and the Treaty of Vienna. It was an inspiration to the working class uh, through the 19th century. The moment that I'll be talking about in this lecture series, uh, the Civil War, uh, was, a, was a galvanizing event for the formation of, of organized internationalism in, in the first international that Marx and Engels took part in. And so the, the oblivion around that question, around the legacy in, of the American Revolution across the 18th and 19th century, and the necessity to carry that forward uh, in the 20th. So just the last thing I'll say is you know, that was really clearly acknowledged by, for instance, the Trotskyist movement. Uh, it was very clearly acknowledged in 1939-40 that the fate of of Marxism in the sense of the Fourth International was closely bound to developments in the United States. And I don't think that we're really past that moment. So the issue of Trotsky and Trotskyism as the failed attempt to maintain or forge continuity with the revolutionary socialist tradition is also bound up with the history of the United States in a way that is opaque. It's not just the clear force of the right, you know, that it was subdued or something, uh, but the failure of Marxism, and in that sense, the exhaustion of the American Revolution is, is, is really a kind of an, a, a, an opaque question that leftist anti-Americanism just obscures. If we're making the case for 1776, what was the American Revolution? What was the importance of 1776? Uh, yes, it inaugurated the age of revolution more broadly in the late 18th and early 19th century. And it was the first really self-conscious victory of civil society over the state. Now, there were precedents and predecessors for that in things like the Dutch Revolt, the Dutch War of Independence, the cycle of English revolutions from the civil wars of the 1640s to the Glorious Revolution of 1688. But those had broadly been understood in the achievement of specific rights of Dutch burghers or the rights of Englishmen. And in the age of revolution, broadly conceived, by that I mean the events beginning in the 1760s with revolts and reform movements that arise informed by the high enlightenment, the radical enlightenment and bourgeois radicalism that take place with the British imperial crisis and the American revolution with the Patriot Volt in the Dutch Republic in 1787 with the Brabant revolution in today's Netherlands, uprisings in Switzerland, and of course the great French revolution of 1789 and all the revolts that ripple throughout the Atlantic world. The American Revolution is really, the, that age really represents the self-conscious victory of civil society over the state, over the centralized state and the political order, its subjection to the needs and reproduction of civil society as a whole. And the American Revolution is really the first moment in that collective victory. It's why the rights of Englishmen are transformed into the rights of man. At its core, it's a crisis of the English Revolution. It's a crisis of the historic rights of Englishmen. But in the context of that crisis, a much more self-conscious, radical project comes forward embodied in this language of the rights of man, natural rights, the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a moment 
of the political consolidation of those prior developments, where people in the crisis and defense of prior achievements become much more profoundly and deeply aware. They institutionalize, they constitutionalize those achievements and provide a fundamental political framework further unfolding. And so um, it's why Marx says in his letter to Abraham Lincoln that this is the first area of the victory of the rights of man and the inauguration of the democratic republic. And I think the importance of recovering it in this moment is by erasing 1776, by not making it central to American history, by not making revolution central to American history, you essentially remove the freedom problem from American history. And it can basically become the story of, you know, it's turtles all the way down, right? It's just exploitation, oppression all the way down. How does America remain a revolutionary society today? I would just say that, you know, one thing that is notable and again, is extremely opaque to Americans, no less than people around the world, is that the revolution of 1776 inaugurated the state under which Americans still live and which anchors the world state. So at the center of, of the global state is the first republic of the United States, you know, to put it in French terms. There isn't a second and that means that the problem of modern revolution is genuinely concentrated in the problem of America. The problem of state power is certainly concentrated uh, in the problem of America, uh, no doubt. Uh, but more generally, the question of what to do with the revolution, we see broadly speaking, on the left, a rejection of all that is new. America is the new world. It doesn't really mean the Western Hemisphere, or only by extension. America is the new world in the sense of a decidedly bourgeois and revolutionary society, one that, in a sense, embodies the newness that has embraced the entire planet. I just happened for purposes weeks ago, have been just reading this book about this revolution that breaks out in the 1780s in, in Belgium, the Austrian Netherlands, this revolt. And it's failure, it's put down, it's defeated. But a lot of the people later on, as the historian was illustrating, will talk and write letters, well, what can we do now? Well, we can go to America. And what they mean by that is literally the, you know, the new world and the new world, not just, as Spencer said, as a Western hemisphere, but a chance to begin life again. I don't want to suggest that America is a product of defeat. That's not what I'm saying. But the way that these kind of, you know, Belgian revolutionaries are talking about the fact, well, the, the option here is having failed or having not achieved is we can go to America. And, and that, that is a sense that you begin to really see across uh, Europe in the 18th century, much earlier. The chance of there's always this possibility of beyond the horizon that is America. No, that's great. And that issue of, I, I think that those two things are tied, America as a refuge and America as revolutionary. You can see that with the 48ers, with the generation of 1848. Uh, that on the one hand, it is a refuge from the failure of the revolution of 1848. And on the other, it is the place where the defeat of the revolution of 1848 is reversed, where the empire is defeated in a fundamental way, or at least checked, understanding the Confederacy as the expansion of the Bonapartist state that erects on the ruins of the 1848 revolution. When I was doing my studies on the 19th century, I was struck by how the Chartists in their meetings and the International Working Men's Association would have the stars and stripes in their meetings, and they would talk about the experiment for liberty across the ocean as an extension of their own projects. Uh, and Spencer was just talking about some of these refugees, these political refugees that go to the United States in '48. For example, these German socialists that were fighting for the Union, in defense of the Union, the reason why they were fighting in defense of the Union was the defeat of the Confederacy, right, was the continued struggle for freedom. It wasn't a national struggle in any uh, meaningful 
sense of the term. And so I guess it's an open question whether or not one gives up on the experiment for liberty in the United States. You know, if that chapter is closed, if we have come to the conclusion on the left that it has failed, or whether or not we misrecognize us being tasked by it. Maybe somebody could speak, what is the 1619 project? How did it pick up traction in this historical moment? I'm most familiar with that foundational issue it put out with all of the collected articles. I'm forgetting the organizer. Nicole Hannah-Jones? Nicole Hannah-Jones, New York Times journalist. Essentially, in 1619, a ship arrives in the eastern coastal settlements, and it contains the first set of African slaves brought to the English colonial America or British colonial America. And in 1619, you get both a colonial assembly in the Virginia plantations settlements and slaves are brought. And this has always kind of been seen as this moment of American slavery, American freedom. But that being said, whatever the problematic character of that approach, it was a far superior approach to the 1619 project, which erases the foundation of the colonial assembly and simply talks about the foundation of the slaves. But the ambition is to make that the central foundation of the United States. In some sense, it's a return to something very old, which was, you know, in the 19th century, there was a kind of conservative element of historiography that would emphasize the 17th century colonial foundations as the true foundation of the country. And the American Revolution is just a moment in that, rather than seeing the American Revolution as the central act in the founding of the country. To get at your central question, what it wants to do is make 1619 the founding of the project and wants to make the story of slavery and its continuing reproduction into revolutionary and Republican America, into uh, post-Civil War, Black Codes, Jim Crow, segregation, in through persisting inequalities, police brutality, etc., white supremacy, the fundamental story. So it charts it, charts it all the way up to today. Yes. There's no struggle for freedom. It's a lie. That's the argument. It's an oppressive class of white settlers that has continued to persevere, and the lifeblood of the republic is white racism that persists until the present in the perennial project that we called America. That's the argument. I'm going to say something and add to exactly what Pam said, that it's the, it's the erasure of the horizon of freedom, right? It's all just yes. an endless struggle of groups for their mutual exploitation, oppression, advantage. It's also an erasure of, of, of black struggles for freedom. Absolutely. Uh, because it reduces everything to a perennial struggle against racism rather than you know, understanding the specificity of the, that slavery, in fact, has a history, and certainly racism has a history that goes beyond it, and that it's not always the same thing. This is deliberately occluded. One document that we might bring up, which is going to come up in James's lecture, is the petition by Black Americans in Massachusetts who are using the words of the Declaration of Independence and are making demands upon liberty, right? They're making, they're making demands that this experiment of liberty apply to them. And that relationship between this universal struggle for freedom and the experiment of liberty in the United States and the black question in the United States gets completely botched if we reify, if we naturalize, if we take for granted the division between white Americans and black Americans, because then we assume that the universal declarations for the struggle for freedom of, uh, you know, the 18th century generation somehow don't apply to those who are struggling for freedom in the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries. And it's, it undermines, actually, I think, the struggle for socialism. What would it mean to understand social discontent beyond racism, beyond race? And we should note that the current protests do take as their targets symbols of the American Revolution. The statues of Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, statues of Abraham Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, whether they're organized politically or it's just graffiti tagging. Uh, but more importantly, what I would say is that the provocation has to be raised as to whether people are fighting with ghosts. 
whether people are engaged in a perpetual attempt to revisit, re-enact a civil rights movement which was against racism, which was against American apartheid, but which also held the promise of the reconstitution of the American left. And the deeper failure of that project is never acknowledged. And therefore, it can't be acknowledged that what we're doing is repeating it. To the extent that the some resistance against the police, against the executive arm of the state, is misrecognized as, um, you know, fighting the racists and not... Um, not the struggle for socialism, you know, then we're getting nowhere. In other words, people who dislike police brutality and don't want to see cops in their neighborhoods uh, beat up their peers are fighting ghosts if they think that the police is a black thing. Reed said it in our panel in 2015. It's not, it's not a black thing. It's a working class thing. And to the extent that we don't understand that, then, you know, we're not really interested in socialism. Well, it's a capitalism thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a capitalism thing. Well, the working class is a capitalism thing. And you need the executive arm of the state in order to discipline working people. And so insofar as that's the case, and we live under a capitalist state, we're going to have the police. Yeah. Or we're going to have, you know, the Pinkertons or, you know, whatever private form it takes to patrol the streets after you defund the police. Whatever it looks like. And the problem with socialism will be obscured. Yeah, that's what we're going to have. And it'll be worse. And they'll be less responsible to the people. Do you guys have any closing remarks? Can I pose a question to everybody here? I mean, everybody, Spencer, Pam, Sophia. What do you guys think about the way in which the this the this period in the U.S. of the past several weeks has become this kind of global moment and its its ideologies have been immediately exported to the rest of the world. I mean, I, I, I'm just curious what you guys think of that, what you make of that. Uh, what, do you, what do you think people are protesting? You can see like a discontent with Trump and also a discontent with Biden as the Democratic candidate. Yeah, I think it's, at least in Berlin, it's very anti-Trump um, at, at core. But also this kind of hopelessness that it will likely be Biden. And a lot of the protests here are being organized by expats, so like Americans that are here. And so it has this character of the election. So it's a sort of fuck Trump, but also, ugh, we know that it's going to be Biden and we're going to have to vote for him. So we better yell very loudly now. Chris put it on our members list. It's the last cry before accommodation. I really think that's a, a, a way of capturing what's happening, that they know that, you know, they don't like Biden. They know that, right? But they really dislike Trump. So they acquiesce to voting for Biden. And so they have to go and protest to make sure that it's registered, that they want more than what they're going to get in November. Well, it's, it's, it's tricky for the Democrats because they can't isolate. They, the whole Democratic Party has, in effect, endorsed not only the protests, but, but the riots. You know, they can't sort of say, well, this is the left wing of our party or something like that. I don't think they would have been able to do that quite anyway. Uh, it's a, it's a. There's also the embrace of opacity. I think that's really remarkable. That, you know, this seems to be a case not of police brutality so much as just straight up first degree murder. Yeah, the guys knew him. Yeah, they knew each other. I mean, it was first degree murder where one guy had a police uniform on. Yeah. Uh, but the, but they knew each other. Yeah. Right? And of course, Trump was way out in front in this case in calling for the FBI and condemning the, 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 the police officer far more forward than Obama was in the case of Michael Brown, for instance, around Ferguson. And I don't think people elsewhere in the world understand that Americans, and especially black people in the United States, know that Trump is asking for their vote. We saw that as early as the Super Bowl, if you weren't paying attention earlier, with Kanye West in the White House talking about prison reform. Uh, certainly it was clear, uh, you know, when, when he started to run advertisements about police reform and, and, and freeing people who had been punitively sentenced and the like. And, you know, in other words, all of the faces of the supporters for Trump 
are black women in those ads, in fact. You know, and, and, and that's where I think you get a real kind of hysteria around the possibility that politics might not be organized along racial, ethnic constituency lines. You know, and nothing, nothing embodies that more than, than Joe Biden's statement, if you're not voting for me in November, you ain't black. You ain't black. What's a problem with that statement is not that it isn't kind of true in some sense. It is the truth of it, mm. which is that the black vote is uh, the, the most fully claimed by one political party. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that was a, an anchor of neoliberalism, in fact. Well, you guys should tune in so it can remind you of uh, what the origins of the Democratic Party actually are. And I'll be yeah. heading that lecture. And we'll talk about the birth of mass politics in America. Hopefully everyone will join us. Thanks, Sophia, for asking us the questions. Thanks. Good to see you guys. Likewise. Good seeing you. If you want to learn more about Platypus and get involved, you can always read the Platypus Review or join our American Revolution Lecture Series online. Visit us on Facebook under Platypus Affiliated Society or platypus1917.org. That's the word Platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org. We'll also be running our summer reading group on Kautsky's Marxism. If you'd like to get involved with this, visit our website and scroll across the banner to Platypus Virtual, uh, where you can find out some more information. Hi, Rory and Clint. Hello, Sophia. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. I think it's um, week 12 of corona lockdown, so I've been uh, marking the days on my prison cell wall. So as pedagogues of the reading group, I thought I'd just check in with you and um, advertise a reading group and find out a little bit more for people who might be interested. So why this topic now? Why are we hosting this summer reading group on Kautsky's Marxism? Okay, well, maybe we should... Um, back up a little and say something about who Karl Kautsky was, because I suppose he's something of an obscure figure today. So there's this um, possibly apocryphal story that one Kautsky scholar had of um, going to history conferences, like academic conferences in the 1970s and 1980s, and finding people there who thought his first name was Renegade. Um, right after the, after the famous Lenin pamphlet um, about the Renegade Kautsky. Um, which we're going to be reading in a few weeks' time. So he has this kind of um, obscure legacy today, we might say, which is kind of extraordinary as a reversal of fortune, because in the 1890s and 1900s, the period of the Second International, the like the high point of the Second International, in many ways the high point of Marxism as an organised force in society, Kautsky was like the Pope of Marxism, quote-unquote. He is this extremely influential character, as a popularizer of Marxism in his native Germany, but also around the world. So there's like socialists in Russia, in the US, all sorts of places read his writings and are converted to Marxism by them. So he kind of exemplifies this moment of the Second International in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The reason why people would think he's called renegade Kautsky in the 70s and 80s is because most of the left was orienting from the Third International. And then most people on the left have been orienting from the only real product of the Third International, the, the Chinese Revolution. And in Platypus, with our perspective on the history of the left, we have to see that the roots of both of those were actually in the Second International and how this is actually part of um, the emergent historical contradiction of capitalism and the driving role that the, that the left was actually playing in that crisis. So I think we could say, like, three things about the sort of context that gives rise to Kelsky's Marxism, and that would be most significantly uh, the issue of the party. 
So, like, a lot of people today think that... Most people on the left think that the party is more or less, like, an interest group collector. They mean mostly, like, the Democrat or the Labour parties. And the issue that we would have to be putting here is that it's actually the purpose of the party that precedes it. So it's not going and finding, like, where the energy is and then trying to, like, drive it towards anti-capitalism or something. But the purpose actually precedes um, the party. And so you can see that, like, after the failed revolutions of 1848 and how for the 1850s, like, Marx and Engels alone working in London are basically the party. What we're looking at here is what is actually a mass socialist party. I mean, in terms of its purpose, in order to understand, like, the history of the 20th century. Mm. And Clint, you just mentioned um, the Third International as well, and how the the fallout of the Third International kind of colours the way we tend to see the preceding history of the Second International, and of the 19th century, actually. Um, and, you know, this is another thing that we're, you know, to, to get to the point of the reading group, this is something I suppose we're trying to address. Like, why is this a kind of obscure history? Why has the left, like, in the 20th century especially, tended to treat 1917, the Russian Revolution, and the founding of the Third International as, like, the kind of year zero for Marxism? Why is the deeper history... Um, because, you know, like people like Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky, these people all came out of the Second International. And actually, even um, even to their kind of dying days, retained a, a certain respect for Kautsky's role in the Second International as, a, as an educator, as a kind of popularizer of Marxism. Um, I mean, the texts we're going to read were read by millions of people in a way that's actually kind of um, quite difficult for us to, to imagine today. So just to kind of round it off um, and to get back to that, that point about the new left, I mean, one way that um, in recent years, especially in the 2000s and 2010s, um, you know, there has been this move on the left to reconsider Kautsky by certain parts of the left. And that is like very much a product of... Um, the, the failure of the new left or like the legacy of the failure of the new left that people are kind of um, being driven to look back to second international Marxism to the party question to this whole like historical moment and are, are trying to kind of reconsider it and so that's kind of um, something we're following as well in a sense we're trying to look back to Kautsky's Marxism ask what what was it all about and what would it mean to reconsider it in light of the subsequent history. So this is in the, the Kautsky turn on the, the so-called left, is in, like you're charting that, it's the 2010s, and we're obviously in 2020 now. How does Kautsky reflect on the current situation? Or why this, why this choice to study Kautsky via platypus now? Well, because, I mean, I would, for example, like with the, with the Bernie Kratt left in the U.S., Somebody might say that they are like progressive Lasallians. So there's two streams going into the founding of the Social Democratic Party of Germany. You have on the one hand Lasalle in 1863 calling for basically state socialism. And on the other hand, you have the Eisenachers coming out of the revolution of 1848 calling for a democratic republic. So you've got, you know, social democratic republic. You've got all three of your terms as a sort of as a sort of aim um, that 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 they're going for. And of course, you know, when they merge, Marx will give a critique of this program, basically specifying its historical task in industrialization. And this will then become like the Erfurt program. So like Marx and Engels critique of the Goethe program of 1875 will become basically Kautsky's Marxism. So in that sense, like when you have people on today calling for a sort of state socialism, they're even below the threshold of LaSalle because it's basically just an electoral pressure group on the Democratic Party. Whereas the most central thing um, that both the Lasallians and the Eisenachers going into Kautsky's Marxism had in view was the political independence of the working class. So once again, you know, we, we want to see how, like, in the Second International, the, the, the terms were completely reversed. It's not like pushing for more reforms will somehow like solve the issue. It's much, it's much more about like how all of these 
things that we're doing are about building the working class into a social political force. So we're kind of asking, how does that history from the Second International shine light on the way that the left is orienting towards Democratic Party electoralism and, you know, the sorts of conceptions that students have today about, like, what socialism is and, like, what the state is. What are you encountering that's new for you on the on the syllabus and how is this helping to deepen your understanding of the history of Marxism and the historical moment of Marxism, which the syllabus in a bit charts as well? I mean, um, so to, to say something about the syllabus, obviously the centrepiece is Kautsky's three major texts, the class struggle, the social revolution and the road to power. But they're kind of bookended chronologically on either side. So we have um, LaSalle and um, Mikhail Bakunin um, as kind of precursors to Kautsky in a sense, or setting the stage, I suppose. Um, and then we also have uh, Lenin and the Third International and the other. So at the time of saying this, we've just finished um, reading LaSalle and Bakunin, so we're not actually on to Kautsky proper. So I could say something about um, what these two figures might kind of represent um, vis-a-vis Kautsky and the Second International, because they're both um, responses to the failure of the 1848 democratic revolutions across Europe and the, the crises that the socialist movement kind of underwent in the wake of these failed revolutions. We've been discussing LaSalle and Bakunin as kind of um, these kind of antinomical, um, like two sides of the problem. Um, so on the one hand, we have LaSalle, who's this kind of um, state socialist, but actually not in the way we might think of that today. So he's not talking about um, nationalisation or, um, you know, the welfare state or anything like that. It's not it's not framed in those terms at all. Um, he talks about state credit to facilitate workers' cooperatives and, you know, on a society-wide scale. So it's really, it's really quite different. And it's, and it's um, you know, there's, there's still a kind of memory of liberalism, actually, and the kind of um, revolutionary tradition of the bourgeois revolution, um, the, you know, the, the notion of um, the self-regulating society, the labour as the social principle of bourgeois society. LaSalle is still attempting to realise that. But in this peculiar way, because um, while he has this kind of um, liberalism in the rearview mirror that's still kind of um, informing him, the means, the political means he wants to bring that about are by, you know, organising the working class into a political party and um, capturing state power. There is something new there with um, LaSalle, but the, the implications of it aren't quite worked out. There are certain like contradictions, problems in there, which Marx, by the way, has a kind of critique of that he wants to kind of push and clarify. And it's a similar it's a similar story with Bakunin, um, who's you know an anarchist, and is a is like an anti-state um, revolutionary socialist, and he rejects all like political mediation, like any kind of. Um, you know, any attempt uh, to get the workers' movement to make what he would see as like a compromise with authority or with the state, um, he sees that as treacherous potentially, and um, you know, potentially leading to a kind of um, authoritarian state socialism, state communism. And I suppose for Marx, they both express a, a truth. Actually, they both express that um, you know, on on the one hand. Um, that the task of socialism is to lead the democratic movement and to um, transform society in a kind of profound sense, to make it actually um, realise its potential that's kind of expressed in capitalism. On the, on the other hand, like um, there is also a, a, a recognition of the problem of the state, specifically the post-1848 Bonapartist state. And Marx thinks that neither of the two... They, Whereas these two figures kind of express something of this problem of history post-1848, they're both one-sided, in a sense. Neither of them quite grapple with this problem or articulate it in terms of its um, self-contradiction. And that's, again, that brings us back to the question of the party, because the point of the party for Marxism, um, including for Kautsky, is to express this contradiction, to bring it to a kind of political consciousness 
bring it to a consciousness of its own historical goal and to actually politically realize that. And thereby to overcome itself in the, in the revolution, to make itself unnecessary. I remember watching around Brexit and somebody in the Labour Party, as they were like leaving the Labour Party because of, because of Brexit, and they, were, and they said something like, the party is here just to serve society. You know, it, w- it would be better if we didn't have parties. And it's like, well, you have like no idea how, how necessary these Bonapartist parties are um, for actually managing capitalism. And like, and so we you know we get this idea. You know, everybody, you know, it's the trope. Like, you know, the Bolshevik party becomes the state. But when you read Kautsky and you read where like Lenin is getting these ideas, like, it's very clear that the party is supposed to like overcome its own necessity. The party is a transitory phenomenon that is, is supposed to give expression to the contradictions of wage labor in industry, um, and to like, yeah, overcome the need for the executive state, the bodies of armed men, um, in that sense. So it's, it's very hard to recapture this, this way that Marxism, and particularly Kautsky's Marxism, and have, they were always seeing these things as transitory phenomena. They're historical. You know, it's, about, it's, not about, it's not about managing things. It's about overcoming things through their own necessity. And so getting some sort of sense of that that radical imagination, if you will, um, coming out of the Industrial Revolution can, yeah, help shed light on how the 20th century even, you know, what, what, why the 20th century happened, so to speak, and where we are today. Cool. And this is great. I was just wondering if you've had any interesting or curious questions from participants in the reading group so far, or if there are any concerns that people, people are coming to the reading group with. I guess one thing that did sort of come up in this week's reading about reading Bakunin is like somebody was asking about, you know, what is the what is the, the, the fundamentally liberal or bourgeois horizon of Bakunin? Because when he's saying don't don't even mess with the state but just like let the people like get rid of the state. I mean, it's, it's obviously very unclear how exactly he connects means and ends there. Um, but basically that that it is fundamentally a Rousseauian sort of idea that you know it's the it's the anarchist side of Rousseau so to speak um the 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 natural liberty of of humanity and then so we're kind of talking about that but then you know you've also got this state totalitarian Lasallian side of Rousseau um so that's I mean that's a bit that's a bit vulgar putting it like that but basically you know the industrial revolution and like the, these expressions that emerge from it, these, these social and political expressions, are a problematization of the bourgeois horizon of becoming. So as these things are, these expressions are in a sense necessary because Marx was there to grasp them as such. Mm. I suppose the readings we've done so far do speak to the kind of disintegration of Rousseauianism in the 19th century. Of course, Rousseau himself is not actually like um, either an anarchist, primitivist, whatever, nor is he like a totalitarian, even though he might kind of appear that way, like through our, from our historical perspective. But the, I suppose um, one, of the, one of the benefits of reading people like LaSalle and Bakunin is that you do notice that they are, you know, even with their kind of problematic character, they are really a step above anything we have today because they're closer to the original um, emergence of the problem of capitalism in the 19th century. They do have this kind of, um, there is a kind of critical edge to them, which is um, blunt today, especially among like today's DSAOs, but also today's anarchists for what it's worth. There's something missing, you know, that, there is a kind of um, a sense of a degraded repetition of these characters um, that we that we still live with, and I suppose that's true of Kautsky as well. The like coming back to the recent attempts to um, to revive a kind of neo Kautskyism on the left, um, although I don't think anyone kind of positively takes up that um, that moniker. But there is a there is has been a trend in recent years. There is a tendency actually to fall below. Precisely because Kautsky is counterposed as this kind of other thing, like this kind of model that is like better, quote unquote, than Bakunin or LaSalle. 
actually that that violates Kautsky as well. That does real damage to um, you know how how we might understand this and to and to Marxism for what it's worth. You know, again, I, I mean to get back to your original question, one thing that this reading group has brought out is the sense in which um, Marxism is not like inventing some new principle of socialism, which he's counterposing to these other guys. Um, rather, he's taking them as expressions of socialism, expressions of contradiction within the the democratic revolution, especially after 1848. And he's critiquing them and trying to push forward a kind of clarification of what these people mean, what like what the actual historical meaning of these contradictions are, and is trying to, again, embody that in a political project. And that's where it's like, yeah, I mean, LaSalle and Bakunin are both positing something trans-historical. So the state as the expression of the people or the state as like an evil, it's just like violence, so to speak. And Marx is very historically specific. I mean, he seeing how the, you know, the emergence of the, the, the Bonapartist state is expressive of a real need of society. Um, in, you know, after the Industrial Revolution and after like, you know, the self-alienation of wage labor into the total social potential of capital. And yeah, so really getting a sense of how Marx's historical critique was programmatically taken up by Kautsky in the form of mass socialist party that was basically driving the contradiction of capitalism across the world until the imperialist war. Thanks for joining me, guys. Um, it was great speaking with you. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thanks, Sophia. Speak Thank soon. You.